Hey, welcome to the Madison Story Slam podcast. I am Adam Rosted, your host, the bringer of stories and occasional interviews and what have you. I don't know. I, I bring you what I can, and hopefully you are entertained by it. Hopefully you enjoy it. I know I do, and I hope uh, that I know that you do. I don't I don't know. I, I hope you're well. That's really what I hope. Hey, on this episode of the Story Slam podcast, we have stories from the Story Slam that we did when we partnered up with Wisconsin Public Television. The theme was resilience and gardening, and so there are some stories that are totally different than anything we've ever had before, uh, but they're all great. Probably going to be a little bit of a shorter episode than you're used to. We didn't have a ton of stories that night, but like I said, the ones we did have were wonderful. It was a snowy blizzard of a night, and uh, big thanks to everybody who came out. Big thanks to Wisconsin Public Television for partnering with us and to The Frequency for hosting. And uh, yeah, it was tons of fun. Hey, coming up, we have got on Saturday, March 17th is our next Story Slam. The theme then is big. Uh, So come tell some great stories about big things in your life and big things. I don't know. Stories about bigness. Any way that you can make that fit your story, let's make it happen. And then on April 21st, we've got Child's Play. And on May 19th, the Story Slam theme is Redemption. Those are all going to be taking place at the Wilmar Center on Jennifer Street here in Madison, Wisconsin. So come on out and have a good time. We will. Those will all be sponsored by Ale Asylum, as always. They sponsor this episode of the podcast and every single episode. On May 12th, we are doing a brand new event called Read It and Weep, and we want you to come read and share old letters, journal entries, short stories, anything you wrote when you were younger, preferably before the age of 18. But basically, anything you've written that you've got about 10 years separation from. So if you've got something that you have always wanted to share or just maybe you don't mind getting embarrassed, uh, we want to hear that. That's going to be taking place at Mr. Roberts. That's a bar on Atwood Avenue. You can find out all of this information just by heading over to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Slam or madisonstoryslam.com. That will help you find everything you need. Anyway, enough of me jibber-jabbering. First up on the list is our good friend, Zachary Shea. We missed the beginning part, but let's tune in from where we hit record. For that matter. But I don't really know too much about gardening, and when I was originally planning to come here, I wasn't planning to tell a story because... I don't know. I was like, I don't, I don't know gardening. I've never grown anything before. And as I was talking with my friend, I realized I had grown a garden before. So I'm going to tell you that story. But there's a bit of a run-up. The most experience I had with gardening when I was little, the most frequent experience I had with gardening, was my father making us weed the front yard, the backyard, his 
uh, vegetable garden. So I understandably hated gardening because it was like my whole Saturday and we just had to sit there and there were always so many and I swear when you got to the end of the garden, they were again at the beginning of the garden and you just had to loop around forever. I don't know how he could stand it, but my dad loves to garden. He loves to grow vegetables. He did it for most of my childhood life, but around when I was a teenager, we moved to a new house. And he met his arch nemesis, his joker, if you will, the woodchuck, <laughs> who ate everything. It wasn't even like, no, it was worse than that. He specifically ate the vegetables. Like, some animals will eat the whole plant. It was like he would eat the corn, but he would leave everything else. Like, he knew what he was doing. And that drove him mad. So I got, in my teen years, a reprieve from all of that weeding, which I loved personally, but probably wasn't the healthiest thing for me because this was also around the time in my life uh, when I realized that when my parents asked me if I was interested in doing school athletics, I could say no. <laughs> I didn't know that. Um, but I started in my teen years realizing I could say, I don't, I don't really like track and field. And my parents went, yeah, all right. You don't have to do it. And I wasn't the healthiest eater. So I understandably started to put on a little bit of weight. And my mother, who loved me, uh, and was, was a wonderful mother. I, I want to preface this. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want this to get back to her, because it always gets back to her. We're going through the supermarket, and she said, you know, you're starting to look, you're starting to look more like your dad. <laughs> That's okay, though, as long as you are comfortable with how you look. And I had been up comfortable with how I looked up to that point in my life. So I decided, had a guess, the best solution was to cut back on eating. I don't, it's not one of those stories. It, this isn't a story where I stop eating entirely. In my mind, the solution was, well, I'm not hungry at lunchtime at school because I, I went to a public high school and lunchtime was like 10.30 in the morning. It was, I don't know whose idea that was. But at 10.30 in the morning, I wasn't hungry, so I didn't eat lunch. Um, so my, my mother, who would pack me a sandwich, I would, I would leave in the lunchbox uh, and I would just go about my school day, which understandably would leave me incredibly hungry after school, and I would basically snack until dinner, and for some reason I thought I was solving the problem and not causing it. But I didn't want my mother to think that I wasn't eating these sandwiches she made her, because again, I loved her, so I would hide them away, um, and I would plan to throw them out later, and then I would go to school, and then I would hide the sandwich that I didn't eat away. Sometimes I'd remember to throw it out, but I had this really big closet, so I had a lot of space to hide things in. And one day, my mother came up. Again, I had this big closet, so she loved to store other stuff there. I think my room was originally when the house was built. The, uh, it was the, the master bedroom, and then it became not the master bedroom when they built another bath or bedroom downstairs. So it had this big closet. And she opens the door, and there is just this garden of beautiful fungus. <laughs> it's a big closet, but I filled it. It was, I thought 
fungus smell, but it didn't smell, but it was, it was, they were whites and blues and greens and all these unnatural colors all over the place. And I had to tear apart my beautiful garden. She made me throw out the whole thing. <laughs> Aw. <laughs> no, let it grow. <laughs> See where this goes. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. Um, so that is the closest I've ever come to successful gardening. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Zachary. Please put your hands together for Zana Crow. Well, I'm actually a horticulturalist and not really a storyteller. Um, but so what I'm going to, the story I'm going to tell tonight is actually about a plant, about a resilient plant. And before I introduce it to you, I'm going to introduce it to you initially by its scientific or botanical name. And I want to kind of explain how that botanical nomenclature works. A lot of you in the audience are gardeners, so you probably know this, but we have two names that are associated with every plant. That would be the genus, and that describes the plant in a general way, and the species that describes the plant in a specific way. And the analogy to this with people would be sort of like their first and last name. Uh, the, your last name would be the equivalent of the genus. Um, you share characteristics with everybody else who has that last name. The species name is your first name, differentiates you from the other people that share those characteristics. For instance, my name is Zana Crow. My sister, Layla Crow, is in the audience. We share those certain characteristics, but we're different from one another. Once you get to know me better, a lot of people end up just giving me a nickname. They call me Z. And most plants that we regularly work with also have that nickname or common name. But I'll start by introducing this plant by its botanical name. And its botanical name is Taraxum officinale. And the reason that sounds sort of unfamiliar to us is because... Um, Botanical nomenclature was developed by uh, a Swedish botanist in the 1700s by the name of Carl Linnaeus, and he, want, he wanted to avoid nationalism, so he picked a language for these names that was widely understood by educated people of the 1700s, but wasn't associated with any particular country, and that is Latin. But you'll also find a lot of Greek in botanical names. So... In looking at our, and, and when you're looking at the botanical names of plants, they can give you a lot of information about the plant. They are often very descriptive. So in this case, we have teraxicum, that is from the Greek teraxos, which is disorder, and akos, which is remedy. So this is identified as a healing plant, remedying a disorder. And also, officinale is from. Uh, the Latin originally meant workshop, and that became pharmacy. And many, many plants of different genuses will have that species name, officinale, and that means those plants were used medicinally or as a healing plant. So this plant, Double Duty, has the genus and the species both identifying it as a healing or medicinal plant. And it was a very valuable 
uh, medicinal plant for hundreds of years in Europe. Um, was used for a number of different things. Um, it was believed to be a cleansing herb. Uh, was used for digestive disorders, scurvy, uh, skin diseases. And so when, uh, and by the way, modern research shows that this plant has great potential as a cholesterol-lowering uh, herb and also to control blood sugar. So these early uh, Europeans, when they came over to their new homeland in the New World, they brought with them seeds of this plant because it was an important part of their herbal medicine cabinet. And it was also an important food source. This plant leaves up very early in the season, and the, but much before uh, more traditional leafy green vegetables are available. It's super high in antioxidants, vitamins A, B, and C, really high in potassium, is one of the highest, uh, has 14% protein, which is one of the highest uh, protein sources in any leafy plant. And um, it's popular as an early season salad plant in Europe, uh, now especially in France, where they like to make a, a spring salad with um, baby lettuce, shallots, chives, and the greens of this plant. By mid-season, tends to get a little bitter, so it's better as an early-season harvest. The root of this plant is also edible. Um, it has a very deep tap root, so it actually can improve the quality of the soil where it's growing by breaking up compacted soil. And that tap root can be harvested late in the season, dried and roasted, and used as an uh, ecologically sound coffee substitute. And not only do, can people use this plant as a food source, but the flowers, this plant blooms in very early in the spring as it sets up its foliage very early in the spring and continues to produce flowers th pretty much through the whole growing season. And it has a very high uh, pollen and nectar, uh, very abundant production of pollen and nectar. So it's a really valuable food source for beneficial insects, over 100 Different types of insects regularly feed on this plant. And um, beekeepers especially value it because it's a long-season uh, source of food for the honeybees. Now, in addition to all of these attributes, the plant's quite beautiful. It blooms early in the spring with a beautiful, brilliant yellow flower and continues to bloom throughout most of the season. Following the flower... It has really quite an exquisitely beautiful silver seed head. And now that you know, we sort of know a little bit about the story of this plant, I will tell you it by its common name, but not quite yet. Many of you gardeners have already guessed it, I'm sure. There's one final piece of this plant's story, and that is that according to the United States Department of Agriculture, in this country alone, on an annual basis... We apply over 90 million pounds of herbicide to kill this plant. So maybe we can rethink our approach to gardening in the upcoming season and rethink this plant now that we know a little bit about it, its story. And it is, its common name, of course, is the dandelion. Yes. Thank you, Zana. All right. You know her from Kiss My Aster. 
please put it together for Amanda Thompson. Thanks. Hi. Oh, wow. Hi. So I am here from Chicago to talk to you. And so bear with my accent. I say Wisconsin. So um, I have a background in landscaping. I started out as a horticulturist a long time ago, which is um, I started out in the North Shore of Chicago. And I would do things like, I don't know, basically deal with very bored, wealthy women for money. And years later, I went, this, is, this is an adult facility. Years later, I went to therapy, and I was talking about my job, and my therapist said, you're a whore. And I was like, I had never thought about that. We're talking about, like, I'm pruning roses and stuff. She's like, yeah, you dealt with some stuff. Um, so I was a horticulturist for years, and then I moved into landscape design, which there's nothing worse than designing stuff for wealthy people. It's just their expectations, and, and it was just really awful. And it, uh, I'm good with plants. I'm, in fact, I'm great with plants. But um, if you've ever had to figure out how to measure a staircase for a hill made out of natural stone, it'll just make all your hair white. It's not, it's not fun. It's not rewarding. Why do it? I ended up in, uh, in maintenance, which isn't, is, is, is as glamorous as it sounds, landscape <laughs> maintenance. But here's the deal. Good design is only so good as the maintenance. Like, you need to take really good care of it. You have to know what you're doing. There's a lot of rules to horticulture, guys, like pruning and mowing and knowing how to make things really awesome. It's, like, so rewarding is to go into this house every week and make things better for really wealthy people who never go outside. (laughs) Right? They would never go outside. We would put in outdoor kitchens with pizza ovens and TVs and couches and all amazing things on rooftops in Chicago. And we would come week by week and we could tell that they had just never came outside. Um, so I did this for a really long time. It was, I was really good at it. I had crews and crews and crews of guys. The better I got at it, the more crews they would give me. So it was me, this like very eccentric white chick and teams and teams of guys that I would have to send out and meet them on the job and give them their work. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Um, I worked through pregnancy, had a kid, continued to work until she was about almost a year old. And then you know what? Shit got real. They're okay when they first come out, guys. (laughs) But then they start to need stuff. Um, So I had to quit my job. And it was a bummer because I did not want to. I was much better at my job than I've ever been at being a mother, honestly. It was much more rewarding. And it paid so much better. (laughs) Paid so much better. The hours were better. I worked about 60 hours a week. Uh, Parenting, really, this is considered a night off for me. So thank you. Thank you, Madison. So um, while I was working in landscaping, I always had an apartment or a rented house with a really small yard because when the cobbler's children, they have no shoes, right? So people would be like, my customers would be like, hey, I bet you have a great yard. And I'd be like, uh-huh. when do you expect that? That I do all your gardening and then go home and do my gardening with the headlamp on? And they're like, yes, that's what we expect, Amanda. Um, this is one, I'll, I'll tell you what kind of woman I worked for here. I remember uh, driving home from this woman's house. I'm leaving her neighborhood, and she pulls in. So she's on my car is going this way, and she's going this way. And she signals to roll down the window. And 
on my passenger seat, I have like all my horticultural supplies, like a basket with paperwork and all that stuff. And, and I don't have an electric window. I have like the, I have like the regular like work truck, you know, with the work logo on the side and stuff. And so I have to like lean over and like scrape junk away and, and roll down the window. And she's like very irritated that this is taking a whole 45 seconds. And she said, Amanda, I don't care what they pay you, but you should at least have electric windows. And I'm like, what do I even say to that? You know, it's like the guy I'm in his elevator going up to his rooftop garden and he looks at me and I'm like seven and a half months pregnant. He goes, I broke my arm once and I got fat. And I'm like, dude, I am gestating a child. Aside from that, I am also fat, but that has nothing to do with anything. And you don't just get to say that, but I can't say that, right? Because they're paying my... Anyway, so I quit my job, and, uh, and, and I'm living in this tiny 800-square-foot house with uh, no yard to speak of. And I think about, like, koi fish, how koi fish will only grow as big as the bowl that they're in. And I've got this eight-month-old baby, and I'm looking at her, and she's just starting to tear, out, tear, tear all around the house. And, and I'm, I'm afraid that the baby's only going to get as big as the 800-square-foot house. Like, she's never going to learn to walk in this tiny little house that's, like, crammed with stuff. So we go and we buy a big house in the suburbs, and it's on more than an acre. And I quit my job, and I decide that after all these years of managing other people's property, that I am going to manage my own property, which is fine for a short while when I realize that I really... I'm used to a certain thing, which is coming in, pointing to a bunch of stuff, having guys do that, and then me doing what I want to do, <laughs> which I have to highly recommend that setup for anybody. And this is, it's highly attainable, so you got to do what I did to get that going. I went on to this awful neighborhood Facebook group of lo- local moms, which I, I got in, I checked it out, I said, this is not for me, I'm going to put my post up, get what I need, and get out go in, get what I need, and get the heck out. These women are crazy. I saw a coyote in my backyard last night. Oh, God forbid. <laughs> what was it doing? Playing harmonica? Why do we need to know? It's a har- We live in a wild area, but whatever. So I go in. I say, here's the deal, moms. I need a couple teenage kids. Boys, girls, I don't care. They're going to weed. They're going to spread mulch. I just need some help in the backyard. It turns out I don't want to do some of this stuff. I'm, I'm not 15, 14, whatever, 16, 17. Uh, also, I turns out I like someone to talk to in the garden. Am I alone on this? It makes the work go so much faster. So I place this ad. And I'm like, hey, I need some help. Um, I need some kids who will come and weed and do the stuff. And uh, we, it doesn't matter when. doesn't matter. We'll make it, make it work. And within seconds of posting this, this woman private messages me. She goes, yes, yes, take them both. And I'm like, hi, my name's Amanda. I'm a local garden writer. I got this thing. I'm going to just take them, get them off my couch. And I was like, what, what? She said, twin boys, 14, take them, drop them by, drop them by. I'll drop them by. And, uh, that is how I got Jeremy and Joshua. Okay. So I think they were about 14 when they started. They're 18 now. Um, they're identical twins. I still don't know them apart. They're identical twins, and they love each other so much. And they're like having, like, two puppies that don't ever grow up. Like, sometimes if I leave them unsupervised, they're just tumbling in the woods together. (laughs) Um, If I want them to spread mulch, one of them 
um, puts the mulch in, like he shovels the mulch and the other one carries the wheelbarrow and this one talks to the other one the entire time that they're walking someplace. <laughs> they're not the most productive guys, but they're, they're so sweet and um, they're great with my daughter. Uh, I just looked at my Facebook flashback today. One of them is wearing like a long box from Amazon that goes from his knees to over his head and my, my daughter's hitting him with a stick like he's a pinata and they just love, they just eat it up. They're just, this is part of the job. I pay them very well because it just, like, I want them to come back. Like, I'm afraid that they won't come back if I don't pay them very well. So um, they're very goofy. They're very sweet. My husband accuses me of paying them because they're, like, they're Generation Z now that I can get along with. Like, they are, they give me hope for the future, guys. I love these kids. They're so great. They're 18 now. I understand everything that they say. They're less, they're more than half my age, or whatever, less than half my, they're 18, I am not. Uh, and I understand everything that they're talking about. Like, they're, they're like Amanda, the Star, Star Wars movie, I'm like, let's talk about the Star Wars movie. They're like, Amanda, this happened on Saturday Night Live, I'm like, let's talk about it. I get, I get it, they're not out of my league. So, they come over one day, and they're like, what's the task? This is the actual, that was all just preamble, guys, getting into the story now. <laughs> Resiliency in the garden. Okay. What's the task? And I'm like, I know it sounds crazy. I know you guys know that I'm a garden blogger and I write stuff. And some of the things I ask you to do, they already knew this part, but you didn't. Some of the things I ask you to do are pretty weird. And they're like, yes, Amanda, we know. I say, today, we're going to make the world's largest hanging basket. And they're like, they're real excited. (laughs) Here's the deal, guys. Last year, I bought a Papasan chair in Naperville that I drove to and I picked up and it was such a big thing because Hazel was in the car and I had to get the Papasan in the car with the baby. Oh my gosh. And then there's the bottom. I didn't even need the bottom and I put the bottom in the car and had to, you know, and they're like, we don't care about any of this. I'm like, but I need to get it out. Nobody listens to me. <laughs> so we're going to take the basket part of the Papasan chair. You all know what the Papasan chair staple of Pier One in the 1980s and 90s. So I take the Papasan chair, I line it with uh, burlap and I take the biggest hanging baskets I can buy at the store, and I put them in there with packing chips, and I prop them up. I have got string on four sides of the um, Papasan chair, and we're going to go and throw this rope over a branch of the tree. We've got a, we've tied a toy uh, watering can on the end of the rope, and we're trying to throw it over the branch, and once it goes over the branch, we'll pull it down, and we will hang up this Papasan that will look like the world's largest hanging basket. And these guys don't even bat an eye. They're like, this is a cockamamie scheme, but that's what we do here. And we're 14 or 15 at the time. Um, So we are trying to throw the watering can over the branch, and it's taking a long time. I'm out there, Jeremy and Joshua, not sure which is which. My daughter, Hazel, was about four years old at the time. She's almost seven now. We're out there, and, and one of them, Jeremy or Joshua, don't know, says, hey, I can climb trees like you can't believe. And I'm like, hey, I don't really want you climbing the tree. And he's like, just, just let me climb the tree. I'm like, hey, I really don't want you climbing the tree. It's, I've got homeowner's insurance and stuff, but I know you guys. I know you guys too well. Do not climb the tree. He's like, this is taking too long. I can get it up there in two seconds. I just climb up the tree like a little monkey. And he call, kept calling himself a little monkey. So eventually he's up the tree. It has nothing to do with me telling him to stay out of the tree. He's up in the tree. We get the rope over, but it isn't hanging right. And he wants to cut down a little water sprout. So I hand him my brand new Felco pruners. Do you guys know anything about Felco pruners? 
They're very sharp. I love them. They're the nicest thing in my life, you guys. The nicest thing that I own is a pair of pruners. I have them tattooed on my arm. I feel so strongly about them, okay? And I hand him these pruners, and I go, do you know that these can take your finger off? He said, yes, I know. I've used these before here. I understand that they take my finger off. He climbs up in the tree, and he's about, I'd say, 10 feet up. He cuts the water sprout, and he puts them in his pocket, and I say, hey, 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 how about you just drop those pruners where you are down to the ground? Because if you fall out of the tree with those in your pocket, you probably won't have children. <laughs> and he was about, I think he was 15, and he had to think about that for a minute. That wasn't something that just, like, normally clicked. It did not click just right away. He was like, uh, uh, oh. So he put the pruners in, in a a high up crotch in the tree. And about 35 seconds later, he fell out of the tree. Now, my heart beeps, beats now just thinking about it. I don't know if it was Jeremy or Joshua still. <laughs> he is on the ground. He's not moving. He's not even breathing. His twin brother comes up to him and kicks him and says, stop faking, you loser. He still isn't moving, and it doesn't seem like he's breathing. And I'm there, and I'm in charge. It, it's you ever have that moment in your life when you're like, "Oh shit, I'm the adult in the room." <laughs> like it just. And my daughter's there watching this whole thing play out because I wanted to hang the world's biggest stupid hanging basket. After it seemed like an eternity, Jeremy or Joshua, whoever it was, like his his lung, like his rib cage was concave, and he. Went, so he had like had the wind knocked out of him, but as he did that, his eyes opened and his eyeballs were rolling back in his head. And his brother, um, I think he, I believe that he stepped over his body, squatted on him and farted on his face. <laughs> so I don't know what to do here, right? I mean... One twin is not quite alive, and the other twin is accusing him of just faking the whole thing. And I don't know what, what to, to do, and it's taking a really long time. And my daughter's outside, and she's watching all this, and he's, he's convulsing. He's shaking. And, uh, and I keep asking him if he knows his name, if he knows where he is, if he can hear me. And eventually... And it felt like a really long time. I couldn't tell you. I, it probably realistically was over three minutes, but less than four. And he takes a deep breath and says, Spider-Man. <laughs> so I get him up off the ground and I sit him on the patio furniture and he's not quite right. He is not responding to Jeremy, Joshua, or Spider-Man. He's bleeding from a scrape on his, just a tiny little scrape and a tiny little scrape, two tiny little scrapes. I go in and get the best Elsa and Anna frozen band-aids I've got. Like, this is it. Like, I'm sure right now that I'm still getting sued, right? I go in and I, I put band-aids on him. And a second later, just a second after I'm done putting band-aids on, he said, how did these band-aids get on me? And I'm like, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit. So I get him some cold water. I'm kneeling. I'm like, how do you feel? What's going on? And, and he, after, after about 10 minutes, he's like, 
I'm fine. I do remember how the band-aids got on me. I do remember falling out of the tree, but he just wasn't, he wasn't moving quite right. Uh, noon was the designated pickup because there, there were too little to drive. Um, and his dad comes and, and God, that feeling, I felt like a teenager myself again, walking up to that car, trying to like these parents, they're like, they pretty much just slow down the car and pushed the kids out. They were just like, you know, I've never really met them. So I walked up to the car and I'm like, um, your little monkey fell out of the tree. And what I want you to do is take him to the emergency room and get him checked out. And of course we'll pay for whatever. And he goes, Oh, those guys, they're made out of rubber. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and I'm like, jeez. Uh, you guys are really good parents. He's like, I've got five. I've got five. You want to kill one? <laughs> I did not see that coming. And I said, can you text me or can he text me later tonight to let me know that everyone's alive and well? And he's like, lives, dies, you're not going to hear from us. Just don't worry about it. And I'm like, I am worried. Well, years later, Jeremy and Joshua are still with me. Um, They still come over. They have real jobs now, but they still come over and help me out with stuff. Um, Recently, one of them, uh, Jeremy or Joshua, sent me a text and said, hey, I need your mailing address, your phone number, and some other weird, like your full name. And I was like, is this this is the lawsuit. I've been waiting for the other shoe to drop. He's like, no, no, I'm just going to use you as a, uh, a resource for getting a real job. And I was like, yes. All right, that's my story. Thank you. Hey, guys, it's Adam here. Just checking in with you. Hope you're enjoying these wonderful stories from our Resilience in Gardening Story Slam that we did in partnership with Wisconsin Public Television to kick off their yearly garden expo. We did this at the Frequency in Madison, Wisconsin on February 8th. It was a good time with a lot of good stories, a little bit different than what we normally do, but it was still really awesome. If you're enjoying these stories and you have enjoyed some of our other shows, maybe you want to consider supporting what we do in Madison. We believe in building community through storytelling and we believe we're doing it pretty well. A lot of it is made possible by the sponsorship we have from Ale Asylum, but also part of it is done by people like you who choose to support us. The easiest way to do that is to come to one of our events. You can go go to our Facebook to find out when those are. But another way you can do it is if you go to madisonstoryslam.podbean.com in the right-hand upper corner, there's a button that says become a patron and you can pledge money monthly to what we're doing. It will help us pay rent, pay fees for the website and podcasts, all that good stuff. Anyway, let's get back to some gardening stories. Regular at Madison Story Slam. The first time I met our next storyteller, he told me that he's that his name is the Meat Man. That's his nickname that he goes by. Because at some point in his life, uh, he and friends, correct, would go to concerts and throw meat onto the stage at the musicians. And the first time he told a story at one of our events, he brought hot dogs. And threw them from the stage, maybe it was the second time you told the story, threw them from the stage at our audience members, one of which was my 75-year-old grandmother. He hit her glass of wine, red wine, which spilled all over her white sweater. 
That being said, please put your hands together for Marty the Meat Man Sosnowski. Down across the line. Beauty walks and raises it. Someday I'll make it mine. If I could only... And I have no hot dogs. But you know, part of that is his, his grandmother was married to a pastor, so I got to say I nailed the pastor's wife. <laughs> I was pretty proud of that. But look, I stand before all of you again here tonight to, to proclaim... To all you fucking bullies and all you snot-nosed girls that I went to school with that said I would never fucking amount to anything. Look at me now. Look at me now. At the Garden Expo Story Slam, who would have ever fucking thought that would happen? So you know what? To all you bullies and snot-nosed girls, I give you who's the number one now, motherfucker? So guess what? I'm no Jerry Apps. I'll tell you that right now. They call me the meat man. And I'll give you another clue. I hate fucking gardening. I do. I fucking hate gardening. Because, you know, they shouldn't really call it the gardening expo. It should be called the weed pulling expo. And anyone who's into gardening knows knows that's what the truth is. Because here's the deal. You spend a couple nice days in the spring. It's nice and warm out. You get your dirt ready. You put your little seeds in. You get your little strings. And, man, everything looks great. You know, in early June, the weed pulling ain't so bad. It seems pretty, seems pretty doable. And then you get to July and August and the fucking things just take over like crazy. And it ain't no fun. I hate pulling weeds. That's ridiculous. And then you got that crap they call Creepin' Charlie. What the hell is that shit? I got a whole yard full of that stuff. You know, our president is worried about that little rocket man and him bringing nukes over here. I think he sent Creepin' Charlie over here first just to fuck with all of us gardeners because that stuff is insane. You know, when he nukes the world, the only thing that's going to be left, cockroaches and Creepin' Charlie. And I, I hope they like to eat it. But, you know, Jerry Apps and I do have a lot in common. You know, we really do. We're both storytellers. We both tell true stories about our lives, which I have some for you tonight. And surprisingly, we have more in common than you might think. Um, tonight, I'm going to talk about my grandparents. My grandmother, Laura Cochran, she, she taught me so much. She taught me so much. Same, same as what Jerry Apps' family. You know, I always like Jerry's story about, you guys have to be familiar with uh, Don't Curse the Rain. That's a great story. But you know, it's not, it wasn't as relevant to my generation because when it didn't rain, we would just go out and turn on the sprinkler. It was a lot easier than Jerry had it. But my grandmother taught me about that. She, when I was little and we would be up at their cabin, you always had to be quiet when it was raining or storming. And she taught us to listen to the rain and the different patterns on the roof. And to this day, whenever it rains, I still like to listen to the patterns on the roof. And I always think about my grandmother. And really, it's kind of surprising that I didn't get more of the gardening bug because her husband, my grandfather, Bill Crockern, he, he was like garden king, you know, acre and a half, and he grew everything. And, and the beauty part of that was is, is it wasn't just for him. It, it, was for, it wasn't for his family. It was for the community. He grew all this food. And whoever needed something in the entire community, they could come and get it from my grandfather. In, in, in the whole spring and summer leading up to hunting season, everything around evolved around that garden with the family and all the grandkids. And everything was, was around that in the springtime, spreading manure. And he had this little thing that was really fun where we used to go down to the river and catch carp 
And then we would grind them up with some other crap, and he'd put them in the garden, and I got to run the rototiller. That was the most fun of gardening. And, you know, I don't think they really ever thought that I was really paying attention that much, but I really was. And, you know, that might be the kind of story that you hear from a Jerry Ops or whatever, a similar kind of story. But, you know, I had a different life than Jerry, and this is one of the, this is one of the things that makes it a little different. That My grandfather was my hero and looked up to him so much. And like I said, he was a master gardener, but he was also really cool. And he liked to hunt and fish. And I got to go to bear camp with him one time when I'm 17. And Gramps liked to party a little bit when we were, when we were out hunting and away from the garden. And so this one trip, I'm 17, and Gramps must be about 65 at the time. And we're partying pretty good. And somehow the t- subject of weed came up. And, I, and so I said, Gramps, you want to try smoking some weed? And he was like, sure. So we fired up a joint, and, and I smoked some pot with Gramps. And I asked that Gramps, how do you like that? And he goes, Marty says, I'm going to tell you. He says, I can see how a guy could get used to that. But he grabs his bottle of whiskey, and he goes, but I think I like this better. So now, like I said, you wouldn't think I absorbed any of this gardening stuff and all this from my grandparents, but I really did. So some years go by, and I'm into my 20s. And, you know, I like to smoke weed, and... And it's kind of expensive. So I got to thinking, you know. My grandpa knew a lot about gardening, taught me a lot about gardening. My grandma taught me a lot about being thrifty. Well, we combine these two things. Maybe we should just grow some of this stuff. And, then, and so I did. And you know what? We started to get pretty good at it. I learned a lot about gardening. And, and you know, for some reason, growing weed just seemed to be a little bit more interesting to me than growing tomatoes. So, so it, then... As, as time went on, we discovered how to plant female marijuana plants. Or horticulturists, you know, I think marijuana has more than, you know, it's like reefer, weed, pot. has a whole bunch of names, not just two, you know. And I'm pretty sure some of those names that you said are probably even included in that medicinal thing. But it's got all kinds of names. And so... We figured out how to plant female plants, and so we're going to be millionaires. Are you kidding me? We got this down. So I grow, I get all these female plants started for the next spring. And, man, we're going we're gonna to be millionaires, folks. So we find this big place up north where we can plant this stuff. And, and um, I got all these plants. So we go up there, and, and we, we aren't going to be able to go back for a couple of weeks because the first rule of planting marijuana is don't plant it on your own property. That's how you get in trouble, planting on somebody else's land. It's like, I don't know who that is, man. So we had this place picked out, and we planted all these plants. Well, since I couldn't go back for a few weeks, I had to figure out a way to fertilize because I wasn't, because you have to take care of this shit or you ain't going to get nothing, same as tomatoes or anything else. So I had went smelt fishing recently. And I remembered my grandpa and the carp and the shit, you know, and I'm thinking, okay, perfect. I got a whole bunch of extra smell. I got 100 marijuana plants. Awesome. So we went and dug little holes, and we put like about three smelt in the bottom of each one of them holes, put a plant on top of it. Boom, we had a, oh, man, all weekend. We were set. We're going to be millionaires. And um, so three weeks go by. We go back. Any of you who are gardeners, you probably already know what happened. We go walking up to the place where he had a plant, and it was nothing but torn up fucking shit. Some animal ate every goddamn smelt I put in the ground. Every plant was hanging. 
Oh, man, and that's kind of where the resiliency comes in, you know. We just stood there going, oh, my God. And, you know, we got about, we got a bunch of them back, and, and we saved the season. We had about 15 of them that grew, and we didn't make a million, but we didn't have to buy weed for a year. But, <laughs> but so here's the, now here's the kicker to the whole story. Like I said, this, this really is a story about my grandparents and what they taught me about. And like I said, I didn't really take the Jerry Apps road that he took. I kind of went my own path, but I, but I still learned. And here's the kicker is, so about six years after this, grandpa and grandma had passed on, and I decided to go to college. And I'm going to college in the hometown where I came from, where my grandfather had lived. And his place was, had been empty for a couple of years, and family said, well, you can move in there. You know, and all I had to do was pay gas and electric and stuff. Sweet. So I move in. So the first spring, the first spring... <laughs> I go and I'm cleaning up the yard and Gramps got an ice fishing shanty sitting out there and I'm going, oh man, I can't, I wanted, I couldn't wait to see all the old ice fishing gear that he had and all this stuff that I could remember from being a little kid. I go out there, there's a lock on it. I get a saw, I saw that fucking lock off. I open that son of a bitch up and there is fucking 10 marijuana plants hanging upside down in that fucking goddamn ice fishing shanty and I was like, sweet! And you know what? I really miss that, man. He was my hero, and I miss him all the time. And I thank you for listening to my story, you guys. <laughs> and come to the Madison Story Slam! <laughs> thank you, Marty. You know, I have heard most of that story before. Uh, I hadn't heard the story of you feeding a wild animal. <laughs> that part makes it better. <laughs> That's right. Uh, our next storyteller signed up tonight to tell a story. And uh, I didn't know how to pronounce her name. I thought it was Lizzie. But it's actually Lisey. So please put your hands together for Lisey Kitchell. Thank you. Um, and hopefully I can follow such a dynamic story. I'm also, hopefully I can do this holding a mic because I talk with my hands a lot. I am not used to not having both hands to talk with. So basically this story is an ode to my mother. Um, she would, um, she unfortunately cannot be with us tonight. She's not around these days, but she has owned the story. And so I'm going to tell it on her behalf. Um, and I'm also part of the story, but not a big part of the story. Um, one of the big pieces was my mother loved to garden. She loved her flower beds. And um, in fact, when my sister-in-law joined the family, she was appalled that my mother paid for somebody to clean the house on Saturdays while she went out and played in her flower beds. She thought she should be cleaning the house. And my mother was like, no, I work all week long. I'm out in my flower beds on the weekend. I'm not wasting my time cleaning the house. So the other piece was that um, my her son-in-law, my brother-in-law, was uh, from a dairy farm, and she loved it when he would occasionally bring her manure to put in the flower beds. So one year, for Mother's Day, he decided he was going to give her a whole truckload of manure. <laughs> and her birthday was also May 10th, so it often fell in conjunction with Mother's Day. So then he decided he'd bring her a whole five-ton dump truck full of fresh cow shit. Now this is May. So in May, the cows are just now getting out on the grass. So this isn't the well-seasoned manure that's been sitting around a while. This is the stuff that is green and slimy and fresh from the cows. He fills an entire five-ton 
dump truck full of this stuff. He goes, he gets it, he brings it to the house, and he says, Worm, that was my mother's nickname, that's another story. Worm, I got a present for you. And they walk out to the front, and he shows it to her, and she goes, Oh my God, that's wonderful! And he says, Where do you want it? He says, There's not many son-in-laws that can give their mother-in-laws five tons of cow shit for, their, for birthday and Mother's Day. Where do you want it? She said, oh, right there, right in the middle of the yard. So he dumps it, and then it's there. Then she realizes, oh, we need to deal with this because it's going to be a real mess. It's going to kill the grass. So she comes in the house. She gets all of us kids out. She's got, we got to start schlepping this stuff. So she gives us all buckets. We're fighting over who gets the wheelbarrow because it's easier to move than these damn five-gallon buckets that are pulling your arms out. And they're not fun to fill. This is slimy stuff. So you're like, yeah, filling, you know, it filling the next one and, and then you got a, this debate going on like do I do a whole bucket because it'll be less trips or do I half bucket and schlep you know more times and she's telling us which flower beds we had a big yard which flower beds went well the different buckets went to and some of them are annual beds so the flowers were not up this is May so nothing's been planted in them so we could just dump the buckets there and then some of them are perennial beds so those already have stuff that's starting to sprout so we're we're required to dump that, like walk along and schlep this shit, literally, and walk around the bed and do that. So, of course, when she points out a perennial bed that's next to an annual bed, we go over, dump our buckets. Finally, she realizes there's 10 buckets in that annual bed and none around that perennial bed because none of us want to do that schlepping. So we're still, we're hauling, hauling, hauling. She gets out there with her shovel and she starts turning this stuff in and it's, and then it's so ooey and gooey. So she decides to just start mixing it with her hands. So she's in there mixing it. The thing you have to realize about my mother is she's loving this. She's like, oh, this is great. Just She's looking at all this nutrient going into the soil, and she's just happy as a lark. And she's going along, going along. Now, one thing I didn't tell you about my mother was she was also very thrifty. So as her... Um, as her girth got greater in time, she saw no reason to get rid of these perfectly good pants. She just would, and since they didn't button anymore, she'd just add a safety pin there that kind of buttoned. Now, these are the days when she had denim pants, but they weren't the blue jeans that zip in the front. Those days, lady pants zipped on the side. So she would just add a safety pin, and then as her girth got bigger, she'd add another safety pin, <laughs> and then another one, and she got to these chains of safety pins. And some of them were eight to ten chains long from here to back. So anyway, but you couldn't see because her, you know, her shirt, it was actually a blouse. Her blouse was over it. And she didn't care. So she was, she was out there in that flower bed just going to town, going to town. And she's leaning over and all of a sudden, pop. She goes, oh, no. Well, the chains kind of maintain themselves because the, the two ends are there. But if you wiggle around too much, then it's going to come loose. It's going to bend out. So she's like, oh, no. And so she stands up, and she thinks, okay, I think it's going to stay. It's going to stay, and then all of a sudden, boom, it pops all the way. It, it, the, she's been pushing a little too far, and it bends all the way. So the pants start to go down. Then she goes down. She's got her at her knees, and so I have to do this. So she's deciding what she's going to do now because she's got these pants. So she decides she's going to walk to the house. She can, because she, she, you have to remember, she's got cow manure up to her elbows. So she's going to go to the house and she's going to wash her hands off. She can pull up the pants or get another pair of pants, probably. 
So she starts doing this. So she's walking, doing this duck walk to the house with, with her pants down to her knees. We're all laughing at her. We're just falling over laughing. None of us are going to help her whatsoever. But I failed to mention, we live next to a toll road. And it's not a flat toll road. This is a high, this is Interstate 9094. So it's not just flat. It's built up on an embankment because there's a bridge that goes over the road in front of our house. So they're up high and cars are going by. So at first, there's just little beeps from the cars because here's this lady's big fat butt with nice white underwear, obviously duck walking across the yard. Beep, 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 beep. Then the trucks get into it. Honk, honk. And that's when my mother's like, I got to do something about this. So she stands up, lets them drop, kicks off the pants. And at first, she's going to go to the house to get a new pair of pants on. But then she says, well, why should I do that? I'm already a mess. And I've already bared my soul to half the world anyway. I don't care. So she turns around, walks to her flower bed, leaves the pants in the yard. And there she continues to mix that manure in with her underwear on. She doesn't care at this time because it's more important to put that liquid gold in the flower bed than it is to have any kind of modesty. So that's basically her story. Thank you. Thank you, Lisi. You know, some people say ignorance is bliss. Our next storyteller can regularly be seen at Madison Story Slam telling wonderful stories about swimming in a poop lake, peeing off of every building at her college campus, and all kinds of wonderful things. Please put your hands together for Mel Hammond. Like Adam, I am a pastor's kid. And when I went away to college, the very best thing about it was that I didn't have to go to church anymore. <laughs> so the first summer after my freshman year, I really wanted to do anything I could to not have to go to church ever again. So I, um, I wanted to stay on campus over the summer. So to do that, um, I knew that I could get free housing in the dorms if I worked 20 hours a week on campus somewhere. Um, and then I could get another job in town. Um, and I'd be able to live in my college town all summer, and it would be great. So I, I found a, a job at the gym, but it was only 12 hours a week. So I had eight more hours. How to do the math? Yeah, eight more hours um, to find something to do that would get me free housing. So I asked everyone. I went to the paint shop, um, the maintenance crew, a dining hall, um, writing center. Nobody had any openings. So I ended up talking to the advisor for the community garden, and she mentioned that people could volunteer there, and those hours could technically count towards the 20 hours a week. So I was like, yes, please. Like, I would love to work eight hours a week in the garden. And she's like, okay, just send me an email with all your gardening experience. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we'll, we'll work out a schedule. So I went back to my dorm room, and I wrote up a gardening resume. And... <laughs> 
it was very short. Um, but the big thing I did have on my gardening resume was that in middle school, I had spent two years in the garden club. Um, it, was a, it wasn't associated with the school. It was kind of like the, the grown-ups in the town who liked to garden. They had their own garden club, and then they wanted one for all their grandkids. Um, and I didn't have a grandparent in that club, but um, like I had two friends in the club, and I knew that there were snacks at Garden Club, and they got to make a lot of crafts for the, the Dark County Fair, which is a very big um, county fair in Ohio. So I wrote up my resume talking about my experience in Garden Club, um, and I was sure not to go into too many details about what I did there. Um, Actually, um, after I aged out of that garden club, they made a rule that you had to garden to be in garden club because of me. <laughs> I never grew any plants. <laughs> um, I did once win a prize at the county fair for making a rock band out of beets. Um, they were called the beets. <laughs> so that was my crowning moment in garden club. Um, I didn't put that on the resume. So I, um, luckily there wasn't a lot of competition for this volunteer position. Um, so I um, got my eight hours a week approved at the community garden. And um, at the beginning of the summer, I went out there with an intern who was doing a little more work that summer in the garden. And she had a, a big plan in mind for how we were going to develop this basically jungle of weeds into um, what would become the community garden. There had been some attempts in the past, but mostly it was um, someone had planted some mint, and it had overtaken the whole, the whole thing. Um, and then there were just like giant weeds and little, little trees that were taller than me. So it was like a mint jungle. And so my job was to wrangle these weeds and pull them all out and throw them in the, in the woods. Um, and I loved it. I had a great time. Um, I would just go out there in the morning, and I would be the only one there, and I would just pull giant weeds and whack things down and just throw it into the woods. Um, and it was really fun. I would get back to the dorm every day just exhausted and covered in dirt and scratches, and I'd have things that were oozing, and I was in a lot of pain, and I was, it, was, it was fun. Um, I really liked it. And then I would microwave a quesadilla, watch an episode of The Simpsons, and then fall asleep. I didn't have any friends there that summer. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so after I had the whole garden cleared, um, we just had... A, a rectangle, a big rectangle of dirt, it was time to start developing the, the garden. And it was this really beautiful plan that the intern had created. And it was circles that all radiated out from this center where we were going to plant an apple tree. Um, and then we would have raised beds that came out from the center. And then we'd have paths that you could walk around in circles, and they would be lined in upside-down wine bottles and, um, like, shredded newspaper and, like, pizza boxes. Um, and so the, the task that I worked on next was to start building up those beds. So they were kind of like, there was one bed in the center and then circles radiating outward. And to do that, I 
got a shovel and I would dig about two feet into the ground um, in a, a little circle shape. And then I would go into the woods and I would get a bunch of twigs and branches and leaves and like put them in there. And then um, the, the garden was right next to the horse stables. So um, there were also a lot of horse people working there over the summer, and they would go in the morning and scoop all the horse poop up into the bed of a truck. And then I would go into the bed of the truck and scoop it right back out into a wheelbarrow, and I would take the wheelbarrow over to the garden, and I would dump it into the hole I had just dug. And then I would take the wheelbarrow over to the greenhouse. Greenhouse is a loose term. It was um, so, uh, like a wire frame building without... I guess it's supposed to have a tarp or something on top. It did not have that. Um, there were some, like, dusty hoses in the corner. But that was where the dining hall brought all the compost. And so there were, like, compost bins there. And I would just scoop out the compost and put it, that in my poopy wheelbarrow and take it back. And um, I, I never really worked with compost before. And, there, like, have you ever seen, like, stench lines and something stinky in a cartoon, like literally there are stench lines that come out of compost because it's, it gets so hot so you can like see the heat rising. Um, so I would take this like mess of like orange peels and eggshells and I would carry it over to the garden. I would dump it on top of the poop and then I, um, we kind of layered it like a layer cake so it would be like sticks, poop, compost, sticks, poop, compost. And then on top of that I would put back on the dirt that I had originally scooped out. And then on top of that, we would actually plant the flowers. That ended up being my least favorite part because everything I planted would keep just like shriveling up, um, which was like not the point of the garden. Um, we, <laughs> we planted a, tr a tree in the middle and I was so excited. I'm like, oh man, we planted a tree. It's gonna grow and be this cool like circle of life garden. The tree died pretty quickly, um, and, and then we planted all kinds of things around. We had this cool spiral coming out of the tree, and then that was flowers, different kinds of flowers, and then in the different beds, we had, like, squash and cucumbers and things like that, um, and every time I planted something, it just, it didn't take. Luckily, there was another intern, and she would come into the garden and when I would see it the next day, it would just be, like, alive and beautiful. But none of the stuff I worked on was especially um, vibrant. Um, one, one day I came out to the garden and there were suddenly chickens. That was the most exciting day of community garden work. Um, and I, I will say I was a little worried about the health of those chickens if they were in my hands. Um, luckily... The intern was, like, taking care of them, and um, I, would, I would give them food and water. Um, one of my friends came out one day, and she was like, oh, chickens, they like to eat small rocks. We better give them some small rocks to help with digestion. And I was like, oh, my God, they are all going to die. They didn't die, though. They, I guess it helped with pooping. Um, <laughs> um, so the, the chickens, chickens lived happily in the garden. Um, and by the end of the summer, the only thing that I had um, really contributed to was clearing out the garden, which I, was really important, and I was proud of that. Um, but none of the things I had planted were really any good. Um, but there was the mint 
that was still there, taking over the whole back section of the garden. Um, it is a resilient plant, I learned. <laughs> and so at the end of the summer, um, I said, well, none of my squashes or cucumbers or flowers or apple tree survived, but we've got all this mint and we've got a college full of full of people who would love to drink mint tea. So I harvested that mint. I made a cool label that said mint tea on it. And um, we dried it. And then we sold it for $5 a pop. And we made a ton of money. <laughs> so that was my contribution to the community garden. And I um, didn't dabble much in gardening after that. But I am proud that that was my legacy. <laughs> Thank you, Mel. I love, I'm learning so much, sort of. Uh, I love all of like the gardening inside jokes that you guys are getting. <laughs> because like, <sighs> Mel brought up mint and you, all you guys in the center were like, ooh. <laughs> and so then I was like, oh. <laughs> Uh, I don't understand. Anyway, <laughs> our next storyteller, uh, just at the last break, she came up to me and said, "Can I? do you need somebody? Can I tell a story? And I was like, yes, you can. That's amazing. So let's give it up for courage and amazingness. Please put your hands together for Heidi Carvin. I can't see any of you. <laughs> I've never been to an AA meeting before. Um, I, I think maybe some of you have, so you can sort of help me with this. My name is Heidi. And I am a hostaholic. It, it, it started simple enough. My, my grandfather had hostas. My mother had hostas. My first ad administrative job, I ran into a curriculum coordinator who had hostas. And she didn't just have the blue one or the green one or the yellow and white one. She had 20 different hostas. I went, who knew? Who knew? Who knew? Who knew? So first I joined the Wisconsin Hosta Society. Nice, small, intimate group. And I bought a house, and I had the lancifolia from my grandfather's garden that was passed to my mother's garden. So I put a little clump in. I was pregnant. I had children. I went, I have no time for gardening. But the corner lot, there were these seven clumps that were turned upside down, and in the spring, these things were growing up through them. It was hosta. I went, well, seven clumps. I can, I can just do seven clumps. So I took them, but those seven clumps divided into maybe 50 clumps. So I put those into a nice little border, and I went, oh my gosh, you know, I, I need some more to fill in here. And then I found out that people name hostas. 
So these were called honey bells. Well, how a sweet name, honey bells. And these little clumps got to be like three fucking feet across. <laughs> so I had to keep sort of dividing them. And then I went to the Midwest Hosta Convention, because there wasn't just the Wisconsin Hosta Society, there was the Midwest Hosta Society. And there were not like the red one or the blue one or the green one. There were 50, 500, 1,000 different Hostas. And they had names. So then I thought, oh, I like these names. I want a cocktail garden. This is the AA theme. So there was the corkscrew hosta. There was, it's five o'clock somewhere. Um, And so I had all of these little alcoholic hostas in this garden. And then I thought, well, this isn't really quite right. I really need to be sort of more zen about this. So I decided I would have to have a peace garden for my hostas. So there is a hosta named Peace. And there is one named Temple Bells. And so that little peace garden, and of course I had to get garden statuary. So there was a little Buddha there in the middle of my hostas. And then I found out there was an American hosta society. Well, of course, they had a convention. So I had to go to the American Hosta Convention. And sometimes it was in Peoria, it was in Philadelphia, it was in Indiana, it was in the South. They can't really grow hostas there because it's too hot. They're perfect for here. So by now, I moved in from my 750-square-foot house with maybe three or four hostas to a larger garden with about you know maybe 20 different hostas to another house where I had 300 hostas. And then I had to move again. So this is all the garden resiliency. So there I am moving from you know my kind of typical Madison city lot out into the country. I have two fucking acres with a big fence row across the back with a big cornfield. In fact, I live on Cornfield Drive in the township of Magnolia. This big, big fence row in the back. And, of course, this garden, this yard, has no landscaping. So I'm digging up all my hostas, and I'm putting them in these little bags and moving them out there, and there's, I just have to throw them all out into the fence row. Well, I could only take 40 of the 300 with me, like the very, very precious ones. And if you know anything about hostas, you get this nice little plant, And within three years, it is a monster. It is like five feet across, and you don't know what the hell you're going to do because everything else is being crowded all around it. So I get those hostas out there, and I'm kind of, you know, learning more and more and more about hostas, and I'm starting to know these hostas at the molecular level. (laughs) I'm going, this is sick. I'm on the internet. I'm finding all this out about hostas. I am not making a dime on this. So I do what any sane person does, and I enroll in law school. So so I'm now reading about law rather than hostas. My hostas are growing bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, I'm I'm in law school, and I go, you know, these lawyers aren't really making that much money when they first, you know, do this. And I'm an educator. I think I'll be a superintendent. So I become a superintendent. 
I've got all these hostas growing and growing and growing and growing. And I go, geez, I don't know. Well, I think I'm going to retire. <laughs> so I buy this little farmette just a couple miles from my house. And you know why I buy this farmette? Hostas. <laughs> it's only five and a half acres. It's sold as is because everything is falling down. But in the front yard are three hosta plants. And that is the end of my story. Stay tuned. Thank you, Heidi. You know, Heidi, someday these hostas are just going to take over. And, and you're gonna, they're going to suffocate you. And, and, and you're going to be laying there, being overtaken by hostas, going, more hostas. And then at your funeral, because of the hostas, somebody, it's going to be me, is going to walk up and say, hasta la vista, Heidi. <laughs> oh, that was so much work for that joke, but it was so worth it. Hey, that's going to do it for us today on this episode of Madison Story Slam. We hope you enjoyed those great gardening stories from everybody at The Frequency on February 8th. If you have been inspired by these stories to come check out one of our events, you're in luck on March 17th. That's a Saturday at the Wilmar Center. We've got another Story Slam coming up. The theme is big and uh, doors open at 6. Stories start at 7. Sponsored by Ellis Island. We've got beer, we've got stories, and we've got good times. And we want you to come be a part of our community. Let's see, what else? May 12th at Mr. Roberts on Atwood Avenue in Madison, Wisconsin. We are doing a new event called Read It and Weep. And we want you to come read old journal entries, short stories, anything you've written in the past, uh, as long as it's more than 10 years old, preferably something you've written before you were 18 years old, because that's when the real embarrassing stuff comes. If you go to our website, madisonstoryslam.com, you can click the contact button and submit your writings to be considered to be a part of that show, because without it, that show won't happen. Hey, thanks for tuning in this time. Tune in next time, and as always, I love you.